few weeks ago, I had the privilege of encountering this thing that is incredibly rare. Some might even say that it is a myth. Um, and it's such a rare thing to happen in the life of a father of two. Um, and that was that I had spare time. I had just a, just a little bit. It, it came so quick that I almost missed it. I almost looked up and was like, wait a minute, that was spare time I just had. And then it was gone. But no, I realized it. And I made the most of it. So you might be sitting there thinking, oh, wow, does that mean like he cleaned the house? Or did he like fix the gutter trap that's hanging off of your roof that his wife hates? I didn't do that. No. I didn't do any of the honeydew lists. I didn't do anything. I sat my behind on my couch and I watched Netflix. I know. I know. I enjoyed this spare time with Netflix. And I enjoyed it because I don't know when the next time that kind of spare time is going to come around where it's just me by myself, no one to have to pay attention to or anything. I imagine sometime summer of 2025, I might get my next batch of that same sort of spare time. But I enjoyed it. And I used this time to watch a show that I've seen a lot of people talking about online. Uh, it's by Netflix, and it's called Full Swing. Some of you might have heard of it. Some of you haven't. But it's a golf documentary produced by Netflix where they are kind of following a dozen or so professional golfers through last season, the 2022 tournament season. Um, it's kind of a behind-the-scenes look. You get to see what makes them tick. You get to see what life is really like for a professional golfer. And that type of thing is like right up my alley. I love like hard knocks, if you've ever heard of that. I love any of these behind-the-scenes uh, sports things. And probably it's because if, if you asked eight-year-old Alan what he was going to be, he was either going to be Tim McGraw, didn't happen, or he was going to be a professional football player. And, like, there's part of me that, like, still thinks I'm going to get that call one day. So I need to learn about, like, the mindset of a pro. I need to get prepared. But last season in professional golf was, like, a huge year in the sport full of lots of changes. I know everyone in, in the room is really well-versed in, in uh, professional golf, and you don't need me uh, to tell you what's been going on or give you the tea, but I will anyways. Um, and if I butcher it or if I get it wrong, I want to let you know that you can go see John Kendrick at Golf for Less, get fitted for a new putter, and ask him just to correct everything that I butcher this morning. But I'm going to do my best. For the longest time, the, the premier professional golfing league has been what's called the PGA Tour. Do we recognize that name, the PGA Tour? All right. It's an exclusive, members only, but not like the jacket, club where... That's a joke for like four people in here, so I'm glad if y'all got that. Where players earn a tour card based on their performance in qualifying tournaments as amateurs. This tour card is a real card. It's like a metal card. It's like looks like someone ripped the plaque off of a trophy almost. And they get it. It's such a big deal to earn a PGA Tour card. You fight, fight, fight to qualify for even the qualifying tournaments as an amateur so that you can go pro in golf. It's a big deal to earn this card. It gives them their professional competition status as well as their ability and invitation to compete in PGA tournaments throughout the season. There are around 120 to 130 um, professional PGA golfers per year and their tournaments may consist of 72 hole tournaments. That is four days of 18 holes of golf each day. Right? Halfway through the tournament if you have not scored in the top half of all competitors, 
So the cut line is somewhere around 62 to 63 for a lot of these tournaments. If you've not scored in the top half of these tournaments, you don't get to finish out the tournament. You miss out on the, the next two days. We call this in the golf world, missing the cut, all right? Everyone say missing the cut. Got it. All right. So if you don't score in the top half, you miss the cut, and you don't get to compete for the next two days. So not only do you lose your chance to compete um, to try to win a tournament, you lose that chance because you're out of contention. Not only do you lose really an opportunity to climb in the rankings of your sport, you also don't get paid for tournaments that you don't make the cut for. So you've spent all this money to travel there, stay in hotels, you're paying your caddy, you're paying your trainers, you're paying nutritionists, you're spending all this money that comes with being a professional golfer, and you're essentially wasting several days. Or at least, in reality, that's not what's happening, but that's what it feels like, right? To be in their shoes, it feels like you just wasted all this money, and you didn't, it's not even that you didn't break even, you lost money. That sounds like they're a normal golfer at that point. They just lost money playing golf. I'm like, big whoop. That's what I do every time I go play golf. I just lose money and lose golf balls and just lose everything and lose my mind. But anyways, that's what happens to them. So, last year, this new league started by a man who was their commissioner. His name is Greg Norman. You might be like, that sounds really familiar. He sells the polos at Sam's Club that have the little fish on them. Yeah, I yeah, knew y'all would get it there. He's the commissioner for a new golf league created to compete against the PGA Tour. This league is called the Live Tour. Not L-I-V-E, it's just L-I-V, all right? The Live Tour seeks to be more of like a modern tour for golfers and fans, all right? So their premise is um, not make the tournament so long or so boring, have fans get to be a little closer to the action. It's more relaxed. Golfers get to wear shorts, which is like, huge thing in the professional golf world. There's just a lot more fan interaction. It's meant to be like kind of a modern take on golf tournaments. These tournaments are three days and 54 holes instead of four days and 72 holes. Furthermore, live tour golfers earn guaranteed money by signing on for the tour. They get a contract which gives them a guaranteed signing bonus, which are huge and lucrative. And these contracts um, keep them from having to depend solely on their tournament performance to earn a living. Make sense so far? Many of these golfers who have left for the Live Tour stand to make far more money per year playing with Live than they could hope to earn in several years with the PGA. In fact, many of them will earn in one year with Live Tour what is more than their career earnings for the PGA Tour. So, to put it plainly, Live Tour offers golfers more money to play less golf. That sounds like a no-brainer decision, right? If you're a golfer, that sounds like, why wouldn't everybody do that? That sounds great. Well, the problem for many lies in where the Live Tour is getting their funding. Where is this money coming from? After all, they're a brand new professional tour, and they're already throwing around over a billion dollars in first-year contract offers towards many of the world's best golfers. You see, the Live Tour is backed primarily by what's called the Public Investment Fund. The Public Investment Fund is the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. 
So without diving into world politics or anything else to which I'm completely unqualified to speak on, I will try to share the problem that many golf fans and many professional golfers who've remained with the PGA Tour have with this live tour. It's the atrocities committed by the Saudi Arabian state. Saudi Arabia has developed an extreme reputation for human rights violations, including things but not limited to, that sounds like a commercial, wrongful imprisonment, public executions of activists and protesters who would speak out against them, social or legal discrimination on the basis of gender, race, and religion, among many other things. There are many, and this isn't stuff that's happening years in the past, although it did. This is stuff that's happening like 2021, 22, 23. Things that are happening now in Saudi Arabia. There are many who feel that the recent athletic ambitions of Saudi Arabia, which is more than just golf, they also have a new professional soccer league, there's the Live Tour, professional combat sports, if you follow boxing or the MMA, um, different organizations, you see that a lot of those fights have been taking place in Saudi Arabia. There's a reason for that. Many feel that it's just an attempt to clean up the public image for Saudi Arabia and to further fatten the pockets of the very men who are guilty of systematically harming, oppressing, and even killing their own people. Something I didn't mention earlier about the PGA Tour is the fact that these players can actually lose that fancy card I talked about. They can lose it. So as, as awesome and as happy as they look in those pictures where they first get it, just a year later, they might have lost it. Once you earn a PGA Tour card, it's not a guarantee that you always have it. If enough time goes by with poor performance in PGA tournaments, you can lose your card, and this happens each and every year. And even if you get to keep your tour card, even if you barely make the cut, you get to remain one of these golfers. Yet you continue to struggle. You're not exactly finding what we would consider a lot of success. When we think of professional golf, we think of these guys like Tiger Woods or Rory McIlroy or Justin Thomas. You know, we think of all these guys who make just – more money than we can think of, right? And we see their net worth, and we see them endorsing or being endorsed by all these brands like Rolex. I'm like, man, if you got a Rolex deal, I don't want to hear you complaining about money at all. But we, we see this about these guys, and we just think that everyone who's a professional golfer must be just raking it in when that's not the case. In fact, in recent years, the lowest-performing PGA golfers um, took home less than $25,000 in tournament winnings for the year. Now, they make money in other ventures, sponsorships. They get paid just for being on the tour. But just the money that they earn from tournaments, the lowest-performing guys, made under $30,000 for a year. There's a lot of factors that can go into that. Maybe it's injury. Maybe it's whatever. But that's not exactly fitting with what we think, right? point is there's a lot of disparity between the people who are experiencing a lot of success and the people who aren't. It's the same in every professional sports league, but in golf it seems to be more drastic. So in comparison, the lowest performing live tour golfers made over $120,000 in tournament winnings for 2022. This doesn't even include their guaranteed contracts that they got just for signing on. So. If you're bottom of PGA, it could be around $25,000. But if you're bottom of Live Tour, it's $120,000, almost five times what you would make. So picture this. 
you are a PGA Tour golfer who's on the back nine of your career. See what I did there? Maybe you haven't had success in tournaments in quite a while. Your yearly earnings have greatly diminished. Your livelihood and the way you support your family is threatened if your performance continues to dip. However, you have the opportunity to greatly increase your yearly earnings and play far less golf if you were to join this new tour. You know, watching Full Swing, I couldn't help but think of what men in these situations must be going through, the pressure that they might feel. And I almost, even as a spectator, I almost felt that pressure for them. There were a few men on the show. I mean, they chronicled some of the biggest names in golf, and you got to see them go through their season. But then you also got to see guys who are much, much, much closer in their financial situation and in their golf game to my life, right? They're still way better than me, and they still have way more money than me. But they're at least closer. They don't look like aliens in comparison, right? You couldn't help but feel for these guys in this position. And then I realized that maybe the reason that that pressure that they feel and that decision that they're having to make involving all these different parameters, their livelihood, their career, their morality, all these decisions they're having to make, and none of it's simple. I realized that the pressure feels so real to me because it's so very similar to one that I feel like I know all too well. A pressure that, if we're being honest, many believers are quite familiar with. However, the pressure that I'm talking about has nothing to do with job or my finances. The pressure I'm talking about is the type of pressure that believers feel when it comes to our salvation, beginning to walk with Jesus, and our life lived after. You might be sitting there thinking, I cannot wait to hear this. How is our student pastor going to draw connections between professional golfers to my relationship with Jesus? Well, just give me a chance, all right? I sure hope it makes sense once we get there, but before we get there, I'd like to just take another moment. I'd like for us to pray, all right? God, I love you, and I thank you for an opportunity to share what's, what you laid on my heart, and God, to share um, from your word. God, I pray that you would just use this time to mold us and to shape us, God, into people who live by faith. God, not live based on performance, not live based on what we might earn or what we might um, achieve in this life, but we might live based on what you've done. So God, just guide and direct us during this time. God, just make us willing recipients of, of, of what your spirit wants to teach us this morning. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I know in my own life, and I don't think I'm alone in this unless I'm just a weirdo, that I struggle with what I feel like is a need to accomplish things for God. It might not be leading thousands of people to Jesus. For you, it might not be pastoring a healthy or a, or a booming church, or it might not be any other kind of markers of what we typically attribute to being spiritual success. But ever since I placed my faith in Jesus, there's been a part of me, sometimes it grows, sometimes it's smaller, but it's there, that feels like there's an expectation on me to perform to a standard and to accomplish things for the Lord. You ever feel that way? Now, I want to pause just for a minute to make something very clear. There absolutely is a standard for all of humanity, and it's Jesus. Jesus is the image bearer, the flag bearer, the standard, whatever you want to call it. Believers absolutely should feel a burden in the depths of their soul that is their need to be like Jesus, to abstain from sin, and to live a self-sacrificial life. We, we should feel that. If you don't believe me, let's look at some places in God's word which describe what we're going to call um, the call to live differently for believers, the call to be different. In Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. So put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And lastly, Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Throughout Scripture, we see a call for believers to live differently. And not just to be different for the sake of being different, but to be different in order to be like someone else, to be like Jesus. Jesus could have saved us in any other way, but he chose to live 33 years. Those 33 years were not a waste. They were an example. They were setting the standard. It was to prove that he could meet the standard of righteousness that made his death, that he died, worth it to save us and to cover us from the penalty of our sin. Amen? Amen. Like, that standard exists and it needs to exist. And we need to feel a burden in our souls that is the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts that is telling us we got to be different now. We can't keep living as our old self. We, God has set us free. He has unshackled us from our sin. We cannot return back to those same shackles and continue to walk in them and to wear them. That sort of feeling inside us, that conviction of the Holy Spirit, that is great. And if you're not feeling that, it's time for some soul searching. To a certain degree, all of us should feel that. Jesus is the standard for righteousness for the entire world. He lived the only life that could ever earn a place with God. And there is a call to be like Him, to reject our old nature, and to live as a new creation. But this call is a call to freedom. It is not a call to pressure, like a millstone around our neck as we're cast into the, into the ocean. That's not what it is. When we read that scripture, it is so easy for us to hear that and to think, God, that sounds like a burden. It sounds like a lot that you're telling me that I have to do and I have to be sounds really tough and it sounds like a lot of pressure the hope is this morning that we'll see that it's not meant to be a pressure but it's all about how we see it it's all about our perspective and it's all about what we're faithful to and how our life of faith is lived out back to golf I feel a strange connection to those fringe players uh, that are just trying to perform enough so they get to keep their tour card <clears throat> I feel like that sometimes and it's in those times of pressure and feeling beat down, now they have to deal with the added temptation of trading all that they've achieved away and going against all their morals for this shiny new golf league that's being dangled in front of them. I get it. I can get caught up in this mindset that if I fail to meet a standard, if I don't stop every sinful behavior cold turkey, or if I fail to display what I believe are markers of a successful spiritual life of faith, I will ultimately lose my tour card. I will lose my relationship with God. He will grow too tired of me and my constant imperfection, and he's going to move on. And although I know from God's word that my salvation is not something that can be lost, and I believe that truth deep within me, there are still many moments where I believe that truth for you 
but not for me. I believe that truth for my wife. I believe that truth for my children. I believe that truth for the students at this church. I would encourage you until I'm blue in the face that God's sustaining grace is meant to be a freedom to you and that God loves you and that God thought you were worth dying for. God poured his blood out for you to save you and not just to save you from penalties but to save you to life in him that God sees you as a child of his now that he has adopted you into his family I would scream this at you until I pass out because I believe it for you so much but when I'm alone in my own sin and my own failures in the depths of my mistakes it is tough to believe it for myself It's in those moments of whatever you want to call it, performance, anxiety, repayment, guilt, or any other way we describe this pressure that we can easily feel that we are vulnerable to the lies and attacks of the enemy. It's in those moments where I'm intensely vulnerable to Satan attacking me in my moments of weakness and despair. When I inevitably succumb to the weight of the pressure that I'm feeling to perform, I find myself tempted to just give up entirely. Does anyone ever feel that way? It's like, what's the point, man? What's the point of keeping on doing this if one day God's just going to get sick and tired of me? If he's just going to give up? Or he's going to be like, I can't stand Alan and his constant mistakes. Why can't he get it together? I'm done with him. I wash my hand of him. If I feel like that's the end all be all, if that's what's going to happen anyways, then why not just give up? Maybe you know what it's like to feel that way. Maybe you're at the end of your rope. For too long, you've been white-knuckling as you resist your sin. You're tired. You're sick and tired of maybe at work resisting the urge to lie and cut corners like all those other people who seem to be having more success than you. You're sick of trying to do what's right. And you're exhausted from coming into this sanctuary, sitting in that seat on that pew, wearing that smile, acting like it's all okay when you're not and you're sick and you're tired of it. And it's in those moments where we find ourselves just wanting to give up. At that moment, sin has never been more appealing, right? To make it a little lighter, maybe like when you cheat just a tiny bit on your diet. Because you can't bear the thought of another dinner of grilled chicken and brown rice. And the next thing you know, you've been on a three-day Mayfield ice cream bender. And you're scraping the bottom of a, the tub with your knuckles. You're like, why am I here? What am I doing? All right, okay, I get it. None of you have ever been there. Fine, whatever. Jerks. But here's the hard truth. If it's just up to me, if it's just up to my own strength, I will let myself down far more often than not. I will let myself down far more often than not. Leads us to our first point. You're like, man, that's been a lot of talking just for us to finally get to the beginning. Here's our first one. Any good achieved for the Lord will be a we thing, not a me thing. And if you want to make it even more accurate, it should say it will be a him thing, not a me thing. But for the sake of this, it's important that we see and always remind ourselves that we are just a vessel that the Lord works through. 
While we are incapable of making much of a kingdom difference at all by our own strength, God can and does do miraculous things in and through us when we act in faith. God achieves great things through ordinary people. God does miraculous things through sinful and broken people. In Matthew 14, we see an incredible and very famous story of one of the miraculous things that Jesus did in his time on earth. At the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus had been told some devastating news. His cousin, John the Baptist, had just been beheaded by Herod. When he heard this, he retreated away from his ministry of healing and preaching to the multitudes. Even God in the flesh, who foreknew and ordained every second of John the Baptist's life, was still emotional and he still mourned his passing and the sinful actions that brought it about. Even though Jesus retreated away from the multitudes, when he saw the crowd still pursuing him, he felt compassion for them and he decided to care for them. Really cool thing, just to remind ourselves just for a moment. He was never off the clock. He never clocked out of being our Savior and he never will. Jesus' disciples came to him after he had spent a long time healing the multitude sick. And they told Jesus that now these people had a, had a new need, a different need. It was hunger. Now many of us know what comes next. Jesus miraculously turns five small loaves of bread and two fish into a meal for well over 5,000 people. And it yielded more leftovers than any Baptist church has ever had after a potluck. Lark told me she was going to laugh at that joke. Thank you. Yes, I rehearsed that joke last night. It's an amazing story, right? But there's a detail, however, that we tend to brush over sometimes. In verse 15, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Although Jesus was the only one of meeting the crowd's needs, he chose to involve the disciples in the process. He told them, you be faithful to do the work, and I'll be faithful to bless it. This is a huge theme throughout his ministry, and it's an example for believers even now, 2,000 years later. During their time walking with Jesus, the disciples learned over and over again that God desired for them to be an integral part of his work on earth. Through their, their obedience and their efforts, the sick would be healed, demons would be cast out, sinners would repent, for the kingdom of God was at hand, it was there, it was Jesus in the flesh. Furthermore, they would grow in their own knowledge of godliness, they would grow in their own boldness and evangelism, and they would repent themselves of the sin that had strongholds in their lives. But none of what was accomplished in them or through them was a result of their own strength. It was, one, it was totally 100% the result of Christ working through them. As a child, everyone tells you how much you can do and what you can achieve, right? Go to any youth sporting event, and you're going to hear a chorus of adults showering children with encouragement. You can do this, Timmy. You've got this, right? Keep your eye on the ball. Swing. Don't be scared of it. Let him hit you. Take first base, like... Whatever the encouragement is. They never take it too far, right? And when I was younger, I believed them 100%. I would like give myself pep talks while I was in the batter's box. Because 
just imagine when you're like seven years old and you're standing in front of a pitching machine. Whoa, it doesn't matter if that thing's peeled back to 35 miles an hour. It might as well be a gun pointed at you. You're terrified. And you're just trying to tell yourself, I believe him. I can do this. I'm daddy's special boy. And you're just like going to accomplish great things, right? And for a season of my life, I proved them right. Because it, it really is remarkable what willpower and determination can do, right? It really does make so much of a difference. But inevitably, there came a day where my abilities no longer matched my determination. Switching over to football, I used to play defensive line. And there was a time where that offensive lineman across from me changed from a 5'8", 130-pound middle schooler to a 6'4", 310-pound LSU commit. My adversary was far more equipped than I was. Doing my best while noble and necessary was no longer going to be enough to cut it, right? Try as I might, and I did. I gave it everything that I had. I try so hard that you get to the sideline and you're just crying and snot. And if you've ever coached football, you know. Like you see that kid who's trying so hard. He is Rudy. He's giving it everything. And they're just tossing him around and laughing at him. Over the years, we learn a lot about how much we can't do. We learn our limitations. We learn our weaknesses. And as believers, we learn day after day, year after year, we learn more about our greatest weakness, sin. Seems like it always has the upper hand. It always knows when and where to get you, to make you bite. And as believers, the encouragement that we need is no longer, you can do this, Alan, you've got this. Because that message shackles me often to the false belief that if I just try hard enough, if I just read enough books, if I just change enough habits, if I get rid of enough friends, or if I do anything else that I've convinced myself, like self-help, that's going to help me overcome my sin, that I'll be rid of it. Because when Alan hears that I can do it if I just try harder, I forget all about what Jesus truly accomplished on that cross. I forget about all of it. Instead, I don't need to just be told that I can do it if I try harder. I need to be encouraged by and remember Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Or Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God working in me, that's what I need to be reminded of. I need to be reminded that God's working when I don't see it. I need to be reminded that God is using me when I don't believe it. I need to be reminded there's a purpose for me even when it's the last thing that I can see. Even when my world feels so dark that I can't see my hand in front of my face, I need to remember that God has, has made me a light in this world that cannot be extinguished. I have to remember that. I have to believe it. Well, how does this work? How does this play out? Because ultimately, it's God's grace that gives us salvation, Right? Throughout Scripture, we see that, that it is by, by grace we have been saved, that we place our faith in, in the finished work of Jesus, and that we receive salvation through the grace of God. 
Well, the only path to sustain success is sustaining grace. The only path to sustain success is sustaining grace. To keep with the sports analogies this morning, one of the most sought-after things that you will hear sports organizations talk about is something called sustained success, right? You ever heard of this before? You ever watch ESPN during the offseason, you'll just hear them talk about how teams are trying to build a consistent winner, right? They're trying to, uh, to consistently win to have sustained success. Essentially, this means that teams would much rather be in a position to win for great periods of time rather than just for the immediate time. A great example will be taking a look back at the last two Super Bowl champions. Two years ago, the Los Angeles Rams won the Super Bowl. This year, the Kansas City Chiefs did. Now, you would think both teams would be excited about their futures, right? The last two Super Bowl winners, you'd think they're just pumped, and their fans are jacked about the future. They're like, man, we're just going to win forever. We're going to be the best thing. You would think they're like Dallas Cowboy fans, just delusional excitement that it's just going to happen. Well, you'd be wrong, because the Rams followed up their championship with a losing season and missing the playoffs. The Chiefs, however... On the flip side of the coin, look primed to be in the mix for another five or ten years. As long as Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey are together, it looks like who can stop them? It's very different perspectives heading into the next year for these past two winners. When teams win a championship and then immediately fall off, we call that flash-in-the-pan success, right? Teams are constantly looking for a way to find the type of success that keeps them at the top of their league year after year, not just a fleeting moment at the mountaintop. For whatever reason, believers are often guilty of striving for immediate success. When we get saved, many of us want to see immediate evidence that this whole Jesus thing is actually working, right? It's like a diet. I want to just keep stepping on the scale like, ah, when's it going to work, right? We want to just see all this evidence that God is at work in us, and we want it to be immediate. We want it to be fast. Or maybe is that we hear miraculous stories about people, these beautiful testimonies of God intervening in their life and them having this cold turkey 180 degree change when it comes to their sin. And we convince ourselves that if that's not what my life looks like, then I'm doing something wrong. We want to see markers of success. But the reality is, although we are a new creation, we still wear the tattered rags of our former selves. Although I am new, although God has made his dwelling place in my heart, that heart still exists in this body. And this body has a lot of baggage. And a lot of life left to live in a very broken environment. And when we see those remnants, those reminders of our old selves still hanging around, sometimes we panic. And we turn to even worse behaviors, namely hiding our sin. It's easy for us to just keep burying the evidence of our sin and hoping that maybe we can get a handle on it before people find out we're not as perfect as we seem. When we start doing that, start trying to hide our sin, without realizing it, we're stepping into really dangerous territory where we're wanting to have the appearance of righteousness without actually having it. I want the appearance of God, I want the appearance of godliness while turning a blind eye to the cesspool that's going on on the inside. One of my favorite pastors was a man named Dave Busby. Dave Busby, um, if you've, you might have heard of him, he was a 
really prevalent speaker in the 70s, 80s, and 90s to, to young people, just a champion in, in student ministry, and he actually died um, years ago uh, to cystic fibrosis. Um, and he continued to preach even with diminished lung capacity. One of my favorite sermons that he ever preached was called Living a Life Worthy of Imitation. It was preached before I was born, but you can still go find it on, on YouTube. Um, YouTube's not been around that long. That's not how young I am. It's just they uploaded it later. But at the time, he talked about preaching this with like 20% lung capacity. Like, was adamant about, about preaching until his last moment. And one of the things that he said was like one of the greatest things that helps people living, live a life worthy of imitation is to be familiar with their inner cesspool. To not turn a blind eye to the reality of who we are without Jesus. To not let ourselves convince ourselves that our sin's not real, that it doesn't exist, that it's not important, that it doesn't break God's heart. No, we need to be reminded of it. Because even though we can fool our spouse, our neighbors, our families, our friends, our co-workers about what's really going on, there is an inescapable knowledge that we cannot fool God. And that knowledge terrifies us. It terrifies us, terrifies us because we've got it all wrong. We break our backs seeking the outward appearance of, of a successful relationship with God. Meanwhile, the one who we claim to follow cares far more about what's within us. An amazing encouragement from scriptures, 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now in this passage of scripture, we're seeing um, God choosing someone who is going to be a part of his plans for the nation of Israel. But I can't help but read that and just see like verification for all that I think about myself and all that God thinks about me, that I am guilty looking at the outward appearance, not just at other people, but myself. I am guilty at being too familiar with what I see in my reflection in the mirror and not taking a moment to look at all that God has accomplished within me. But thanks be to God that he looks at my heart. And thanks be to God that despite my sin, God's already changed my heart. God has moved in to my heart. That's where he is. That is what he has made clean. And that when God sees me, although I see myself still as a dirty, broken sinner, God sees me as a saint. God sees the finished work of Jesus. God sees what he has accomplished in my heart already. Thank God for 1 Samuel 16, 7. Thank God that the Lord looks on the heart. And that he changes them and that he saves them and that he redeems them years before the body catches up. When you place your faith in Jesus, you enter into a covenant relationship. That is a promised relationship. And the crazy thing is, you enter into a promised relationship with the only being in existence who's incapable of breaking promises. That's really important. And there's not a special prayer, a correct denomination, or a way of being raised that can just give you this relationship. Parents, you would agree with me. If I, I'm, as a dad of two now, if I could give that relationship to my children, I would do it. I would sever off my own arm. I would give my life in a heartbeat if I knew that the result would be that my children believed in Jesus. It was not, I'm not even trying to lie or exaggerate. I truly would lay my life down in a moment if I knew that they would be with Jesus. Badly as I want to give it to them, though, I can't. I can't. I can't make them believe. I can't make our young people believe. I can't make anyone believe. I can't even make myself believe. It is only from the grace of God, His pure, free, and undeserved favor and loving kindness 
upon us that we might know him. From that moment that we profess faith in Jesus, that we begin to believe in him, from that moment we are justified and forgiven by God's grace forever. Amen? That's awesome. We should rejoice in the fact that we are justified at that moment. Because a lot of us have this attitude that that's where the relationship begins, but now with the rest of my days, I've got to somehow fix myself up enough that I can actually make that journey into heaven one day, that I can finish it. Like It's like God gets us started, but we've got to finish the work. No, that's not it. Justified means once and for all we are made right with God. That happens immediately. That has to be the thing that we rejoice in. Because if not, we'd have no hope. We have no hope. But if our knowledge of God's grace halts here as something we experience just for one shining moment, then we miss out on riches of His goodness. The grace of God is not just what established your relationship with God. It's the only thing that will sustain it until that glorious day when you see Him face to face. It's the only thing that will sustain you. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Just pause for a moment. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. If you know anything about Corinth, one of the big correlations that we draw a lot is that they were a port city, and a lot of people want to say it's very similar to New Orleans. And me being someone who's from Louisiana, like that resonates for me. I grew up spending a lot of time in New Orleans. So when I put myself in this mindset of these people receiving this letter, Paul is saying, I am so thankful for you in that broken and sinful and barren wasteland that you're having to live. Well, there's nothing around you that's supporting you following Jesus that he's given his grace to you that he's given his patience to you, that he's given his kindness to you, like, I believe he is totally 100% thankful that the Corinthian church was living under God's grace because he knew how hard their lives were going to be. He knew how tough it would be to be a faithful believer in Corinth. So he was thankful and praised God for his grace. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is faithful and He has called us into relationship with His Son. That's amazing news. Church, you're not the PGA golfer who has to worry about whether or not their lack of performance is going to cost them their tour card. God will sustain you. In a world full of temptation around every corner, you don't have to be controlled by the desires of your flesh. God died so that you might be guiltless and blameless. And not just be seen guiltless and blameless, but actually be guiltless and blameless. Let no fault therefore be among you. Like God died so that's possible. I don't have to keep sinning. I don't have to. Do I? Unfortunately, yes. That feels like a funny, like, wah, wah. It's not funny. It's my brokenness for the rest of my life. Paul spoke about a thorn in his side that he begged God to remove from him. God left it so that Paul might always rejoice in his weakness because that is God's power at work inside him. If that's the reason that I have to continue to live with my brokenness and my sin so that I continue to praise Jesus, then it's worth it. It's worth it. There's a pretty famous book 
um, written by a believer named J.I. Packer in 1972, and I've been reading it lately um, in my time in the office, and it's so stinking good. It's called Knowing God, and the Lord showed me something there this week. It says, your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God, while God is resolved to hold you. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. I need to remind myself of that each and every day. That despite my best efforts, and sometimes it feels like I'm giving a lot of effort towards making God grow tired of me, despite the best of my sin, God will not grow tired of sustaining me. He will hold me forever. As we're wrapping up, as we're getting ready to, to conclude this morning, by becoming people who remind ourselves, and honestly to ourselves, God's sustaining grace in our life, we can experience the type of freedom that only happens when like a heavy load is taken off of your shoulders, right? I've talked about sports a lot this morning, but for anyone who's ever played football, like that moment when you get to take the shoulder pads off after practice and it's like, ugh. That weight is just lifted and you can breathe again. It's like that same sort of thing. Or like when you're having to help someone move. Anyone ever help someone move? My sister took what we joke is like a month-long vacation to Nashville when she moved there for what was going to be forever and came home after a month. And she lived on the third floor of an exterior apartment in Nashville. And I moved her up in June and back in July. And I have not let her forget it. She still owes me one. And that was 15 years ago. But I remember getting to the end of that and getting like her couch off my back after we had brought it back into her storage unit back home. This means like the fifth or sixth time I've moved this stinking couch. I remember just that relief. I just laid on the ground and wanted to cry. I felt so free to finally be done moving that stinking couch. Now, inevitably, I moved that couch again later. But there was a freedom that came from that, from that heavy load finally being done. Something I'm passionate about is teaching young people that God doesn't give them a new life in Christ just to leave them alone to figure out the rest. He doesn't abandon those he adopts as sons and daughters. He's not like the unfair teacher who sets up, uh, sets up students for failure on each exam. Through God's sustaining grace and the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us, God equips us for every good work he desires to accomplish in and through us. So we are free from the pressure to achieve things in order to earn favor. We see through God's word that he is a good father. I know the song sometimes can make us think it's a little corny, but we need to remind ourselves just how good of a father he is. He's not the father that only gives affections to his children whenever they perform well enough. He is the father that freely and lavishly bestows his kindness upon his children. He loves you. And you don't have to earn it. So there's no pressure to achieve things to earn favor. God's favor has been bestowed on us through the cross so we don't work as laborers who have an unfair master. We are free to work for the promised success, not out of fear of potential favor. We are free to work in faith, to live faithful lives because we know the success has been promised, the success has actually already occurred in our life, and we know from God's word that he will keep us and sustain us and be with us every single day until we are with him when our salvation is finally complete and we stand before him. 
We don't have to worry about a potential failure that might come. You won't let him down bad enough. Does God still get disappointed for my sin? Yeah, I said he was a good father. I have a really great father. And I've done things in my life that disappoint him. He has to sit down and be like, buddy, I wish you'd quit. Because life would be so much better for you if you would. I wish you'd stop that. And there's times where I feel like God is speaking to me that same way. Like, man, do you know the things that I'm trying to accomplish in your life? Do you know how, how blessed you've been by these things that I'm doing? And, and I don't want to see those things ruined by this behavior or these mistakes. Because what? A good father, that's what they do. They care about their children, and they care about them being on the right path. But God will never abandon you. Never. I love the song that we finished up with, Mercy. And I love that that last line of the chorus. I think it's so fitting for this morning. I'm so glad that my freedom wasn't based on what I've done, but the goodness and mercy and power of the blood. Right? That's why we rejoice. Church, that's why we rejoice, that our freedom is not based on anything that we've done or haven't done, but it's 100% on the finished work of Jesus.